Open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I'm standing in for Pastor Steve today with a sore throat and all. Can you all hear me? Then we're good. Romans chapter 1. This section of Romans is heavy. Heavy because of what it says. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. They're just two verses. But the weight of these verses is extremely heavy. Extremely heavy. Romans 1, 16 and 17 is the theme of Romans. It also points to the number one person, Jesus Christ, the theme of the scripture. Some people say that Romans is the apex of the Bible and that Romans 1, 16 and 17 is the apex of Romans. Listen at what John Newton says. Raise your hand if you know who John Newton is. For those of you who don't know, he was a slave uh, transporter on ships to the New World. But he repented of what he did, and here's what he says. Many of you will recognize these words. Amazing grace. Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. This grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Those are the words of John Newton. He understood Romans 1, 16 and 17, surely. He also reflected on what the Apostle Paul felt when he said the following words in Romans 7, 24 and 25. Paul said, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, John Newton was reflecting what Scripture said about God's grace and mercy upon such a wretched sinner. Listen at what Martin Luther said about the same section of Scripture. He said, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, The justice, which is the righteousness, of God. 
Because I took it to mean that justice, whereby God is just and deals justice justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning and whereas before the Justice of God had filled me with hate. Now it became to me inexpressible, sweet, and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. That's what Luther says about Paul's writing on Romans 1, 16 and 17. You see, both of the men above, both John Newton And Martin Luther reflected on Paul's truth of the gospel message. And here's what Romans 1, 16 and 17 says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, let someone's ears hear this gospel message today and be changed. Renew someone today, Lord, and those of us who are already believers Help us to be encouraged to live lives that are worthy of being called Christians. Amen. So previously in this passage, Paul has addressed himself as a messenger of this gospel. A messenger that has been sent from Christ from above. A messenger that is writing to readers who are believers. And he prays that they will stay faithful And he wants to visit them and impart the gospel to them. They're already believers, but he still wants to preach the gospel to them. In verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Verse 15, so for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. The gospel. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 
What is the gospel? That is the question today. Some of you have heard the word gospel preaching, gospel singing, gospel this, gospel tracts, gospel everything. What is the gospel? Let's start with the basics. Euangelion is the Greek word for gospel. Euangelion. I remember teaching my kids this, and they remembered it probably still to this day. The euangelion, dad. (laughs) Well, you means good. The you part of euangelion. The you means good. It's a double word. The angelos means message or messenger. So it's the good news, the good message. It's a proclamation of good news. That's the euangelion, the gospel, a proclamation of good news. It's the proclamation of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. It's important here that Paul focuses on the weight of the scriptures. Today some pastors are preaching that you don't need to preach the Bible says. But here we have Paul says according to the scriptures. In Acts 19, we have Paul's calling to be this messenger of God sent to preach the gospel when the Lord sent Ananias to verify Paul's calling. And in Acts 9.15, it says, But the Lord said to him, to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. So Paul was chosen to bear Christ's name, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So when Paul says he was set apart for the gospel, this is what he's talking about. Paul spoke of his calling to preach Christ in Galatians 1.14. He said, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. He was really excited about being a Jew. Thank you, sir. He was really excited. And I'm sore for screaming for my son this weekend. (laughs) He made it on the state team and he won that match, but he also got fourth place as an individual. That's why I lose my voice. Screaming. Should have saved it for here. And so he was set apart for the gospel to bear Christ's name. And so Paul was very zealous for his ancestral traditions. Now this is interesting. He was very zealous for his ancestral traditions about Judaism. But he wasn't on the right track. He thought he was. And it says in verse 15, but when God, who had set me apart 
even from my mother's womb, from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul was called to preach this gospel. He was ready. He was willing. And then we have that famous announcement that we always read at Christmas time about the angels on the hillside. We can always picture the angels showing up to the shepherds when Jesus the baby was born. In Luke chapter uh, 8 here, or Luke 4, I can't remember here, I marked out here. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news. Good news, the angels say. That's the euangelion. The angels were telling the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The good news is that there is a Savior born. That's good news. That means you need a Savior. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed to tell you this good news. What is this a shame? Why is he even saying this? What does a shame mean? It means to be embarrassed, humiliated, to suffer a sense of loss because of someone else's actions. He's humiliated. He's saying, I'm not humiliated. I'm not ashamed of this good news of Christ Jesus. I'm not ashamed. Why is he saying that? Well, Paul was being persecuted. He was being pushed from one town to another. We all know that story about how Paul went to Berea when he left Thessalonica. And people were trying to stone Paul. He was being persecuted heavily. The Jews were after him because they looked at him as a traitor and apostate to Judaism. How can you preach such foolishness, Paul? He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed. I'm not embarrassed of Christ. The Jews saw the gospel as foolish and as a stumbling block. In 1 Corinthians we read, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of, the, since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Listen at this. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Through the foolishness of the message preached. Paul said, I'm not ashamed. The Judaizers, the Jews were saying, how foolish is this message? You're saying that God has come, the Messiah we've been waiting on has come, and then he's going to die on a cross. That's foolish. 
And then it goes on to say, For indeed Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God. And the wisdom of God. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. Paul even told Timothy not to be ashamed. In 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 12, he says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Paul says, don't be ashamed, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Are we suffering for the gospel today? For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted. Paul's talking about his own life. What I have entrusted to him until that day. Romans 6.21, Paul explains that we should only be ashamed of our sins. That's the only thing we should be ashamed of, our sin, not of the gospel. And then 6.21, he says, therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. The only thing you should be ashamed of is your sin. Don't be ashamed of Christ Jesus. When someone asks you about your faith, about your Christianity, if you go somewhere, don't be ashamed to stand up for Christ. Especially in this day and age. If you are against homosexuality, people will look at you as if you are a bigot racist. That's false. If you are against abortion, People say you're against women's freedom and and rights. That's false. We're not ashamed of the gospel. Well, Christ says that there is a consequence of being ashamed of the gospel. In Mark 8.38, he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Those are frightening words. Paul says, I'm not ashamed, for it is the power of God for salvation. This is why he's not ashamed, because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's like a doctor saying, this is the medicine you need. Don't be ashamed of it. You need this. The power is outside of man's ability. Romans 5, 6 says, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still, what? Helpless. Helpless. Christ died. For the ungodly. While we were helpless. That means you couldn't do anything. 
Absolutely nothing. Philippians 1, 5 through 6. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He who began a good work in you will perfect it. He's not done with you yet. And you didn't begin it. My grandfather, who died at 107 years old about five years ago, this was his favorite verse. I said, Grandpa, what was your favorite verse in the Bible? He's a pastor. He'd been a pastor since he was 44, and he was 107. And this was his favorite. He always told me that God was always working on him. Always. You're never reached a point where you're beyond, uh, beyond God. You always need the work of God. He has done it. It's outside of yourself. The gospel does not begin within yourself. You can't save yourself. It says why you were helpless. Well, this power of God is effectual. It will be successful. It will be successful. Count on it. Don't doubt it. Listen to what Romans 8, 31 and 39 say. By the way, I have a lot of Bible quotes. I got nothing else to give you. Who cares what I think? I have nothing else to give you but what God says. Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things. Wow. It's successful. This next one gets me. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? What's the answer to that? No one. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. This verse means a lot to me. Many of you know my testimony about how I was saved. And if you want to know, ask me after church, and I'll gladly tell you. But let me tell you, this verse hits hard being the son of a pastor my whole life, and I turned away from the faith, this verse one day hit me that Christ saved me. No one can condemn me anymore. No one. He intercedes for us. He's our advocate. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Rhetorical question, obviously, right? No one. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him. You notice he says overwhelmingly? If the Bible says a word like that, overwhelmingly, it's not there just by chance. We overwhelmingly conquer. What do we conquer? Ephesians 6, what do we conquer? What kind of forces? 
Yes. The evil forces, the powers, the principalities in the air. The evil forces. We overwhelmingly conquer through him. Not on our own. Through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's basically saying nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Except for your own lack of faith. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. And then he says, to everyone who believes. Wow. (laughs) To everyone who believes. That goes against everybody's going to heaven. That squashes that right there. He says, to everyone who believes. Well, what is believing? Well, first of all, I need to get a little Greek on you. It's a present active participle. It's an ongoing belief. It's a, to everyone who's believing all the time. It's an active thing. Not just a one-time done thing. It's an ongoing thing. To everyone who continues to act out the faith, to believe. Well, believing and faith are the same word in the Greek. It's the pistos. What is the definition It's to consider something to be true and therefore worthy of one's trust. It's not believing that Christ exists. Satan knows that Christ exists. So do the demons. And then they asked him uh, not to send him to the place and instead they went into the pigs that Pastor Steve talked about last Sunday. They know he exists too. Judas knew that Christ exists. It's not believing he exists. That's ridiculous. But you know that Christ is true and worthy of your trust. You know he's true and worthy of your trust. To be committed to his trust. Being convinced of the work of Christ on the cross. Being able to save you from your sins. So do you trust Christ 100% that what he has done is good enough for you? And that everything that you can do is not good enough? That's true faith. 100% all in. That's true faith. Faith is a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through what? And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Your faith was given to you as a gift from God. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now, apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who what? Believe. For there is no distinction 
Now, this is, this is important here. There's no distinction. Now, we all fall under this category. For all have what? And fallen short of the glory of God. Have you ever heard somebody say, when you're giving the gospel to them, well, I'm a good person. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What did Christ say when the man said, oh, good teacher? He says, what? (laughs) And then it goes on to say, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displays publicly as a propitiation, a payment in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So it's to everyone who believes. But you have to be a believer. And I told you the definition of believing. To consider something to be true and worthy of your trust. Do you trust Jesus? Have you completely gone all in? That's what he calls for. Complete faith. Complete trust. And then he says, to the Jew first and also the Greek. As if to specify to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also the Greek. Very simply said, it originates with the Jews. It was through Israel that salvation entered the world through Israel. Romans 3.29 Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Through the Jews and the Gentiles. It began with the Jews. We know that Christ was a Jew. From Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob is Israel. Jacob to Judah. Judah to David. David to Christ. That is where the faith came. Now let's talk about righteousness a little bit here in verse 17. It says, for in it, in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. What is this righteousness of God? Righteousness. I used to always think when I was a kid, righteousness were people that were arrogant. Because my mom would always say, that guy is so (laughs) self-righteous. Well, this is not right. That's self-righteous. But the righteousness, this is the quality of being innocent. Upright, correct, being in a right standing before God. God is the judge. So if you are right and correct before the judge, that means you're not what? Not guilty. That's right. You're not guilty. Because God is holy and pure and perfect. And he requires perfect obedience. That's right. I'm going to repeat that. He requires perfect obedience. 
Some of you might say, well, man, no one's perfect. You're right. But that's what God requires. Perfect obedience. He requires purity and uprightness. Well, how can we be pure and upright? Well, God has provided a way for that. Through his son, who is pure, upright, and perfect. It's through his son. His son has all these qualities. We do not. We're lacking. We're empty without Christ. That's why your reliance has to be 100% on Christ. It's an alien righteousness. It's outside of ourselves. It's imputed. It's given to us without any merit, without being earned. We didn't earn any goodness on our own. Like the Italian mafia guys say, forget about it. (laughs) You didn't earn it. It's imputed. 2 Corinthians says this, chapter 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Wow! Have you ever taken something dirty or nasty from someone else onto yourself? If you see someone dirty and nasty, you won't even go near them. Our sins are more than dirty and nasty. I'm going to read that again. He, God the Father, made him who knew no sin, the Son, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. People say God is love. That's what love does. But there had to be a punishment. Christ took it. We were supposed to take it. He says, for in it, this righteousness that we're talking about of God is revealed from faith to faith. This is a section that is argued over. Some people say it's from one level of faith to the next. Um, But that means that people would have different levels of faith, so on and so forth. I can only tell you what my take is based off of my studies. Um, My take is if you, in the context, it says the righteousness of God, in the Greek, it literally says the righteousness of God is from faith to faith revealed in the gospel. (laughs) Okay? So if you take it that way, it's saying from one faithful person proclaiming it to another person who's been gifted with the faith from God, thus is faithful. And one example of that is Romans 10, 14 through 17, which says, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring what? Good news, the euangelion of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And I believe that reflects what Paul is saying here when he's talking about from faith to faith. And then he goes on and quotes Habakkuk 2.4. 
He says, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Well, this is important because here we can see that faith is an Old Testament theme, just as it is a New Testament theme. This is nothing new. We've always had to be saved by our faith, not by all the sacrifices. That was never the way of salvation. It's always been by faith. In Romans 1, 1 through 2, Paul says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through what? The prophets and the holy scriptures. Well, he wasn't talking about the New Testament yet. What is he talking about? The Old Testament. Look at the example of Abraham. In Genesis 12.1, God said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. To the land which I will show you. So Abraham had faith and he left Ur. He's already in Ur and he just left. He showed faith there. Well, Paul says in Galatians 3 that the gospel message was preached to Abraham. Paul says that in Galatians 3. He says, even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Those who are of faith. And here's an interesting note on the scripture. It says, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. That's personification. The, pre- the scriptures didn't actually get up and preach. If they did, I'd be scared. But it's personification. It's saying that the scripture is saying this. In the Old Testament, the reliance on the scripture. And then it says, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Abraham also showed faith by obeying the command to sacrifice his own son, Isaac. And we know that whole story. But what's interesting is, is when Abraham was going to go and sacrifice his son, he said to his young men in Genesis 22, 5, 7, and 8, Stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. So Abraham is saying, me and my son are going to return to you. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide. Abraham showed faith. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them, so the two of them walked on together. So either Abraham was lying <laughs> both times, or he was showing faith. We know that Abraham is spoken of as having complete faith. And then down in verse 10 of Genesis 22, it says, Abraham stretched out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand 
against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God. Why? Because he was going to sacrifice his son. He says, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. What does Paul say about Abraham's faith? Well, he says that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Romans 4, 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does, again, what does the scripture say? There's a heavy reliance on the scripture. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. He believed. And we're going to end off with a prophecy given to Isaiah, another example of faith in the Old Testament, but in a different way. Here we're going to see this prophecy, this reliance of faith in the Old Testament and what they talked about the Messiah coming in Isaiah 53. And we all know this famous verse of Isaiah 53, verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. A guilt offering. We know this is talking about Christ. This is probably the best uh, explanation of the passion that we can read in the Old Testament. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death. And was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sins of many, bore the sin of many, and interceded for the transgressors. That is the true gospel. That is the good news of Christ Jesus. If any of you today do not have any knowledge of Christ, hopefully you understand who he truly is today. And what he has done for you. And I really do hope and pray that someone can hear this message today and be changed. Maybe someone has heard the gospel many times, but doesn't understand what it truly means to them in their own personal lives. But I urge you who are not believers, trust in God today. Trust in him today. Repent of your sins, turn away, and be all in, and follow Christ and believe in him. I pray that today. Father, we thank you so much for your word in Romans 1, 16 and 17. The gospel message. Lord, the righteous shall live by faith. 
And Lord, while sometimes we're weak and battered down by today's world, we have faith in knowing that you're absolutely 100% sovereign and in control. Thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. Amen.